ko te waka hoitahi e tai, ko te waka hoirua e kore e tai. The waka road in unison will arrive. The waka that is not road in unison will be delayed. E nā hoe whao o te motu i tēnei te mihi ki a tātou katoa, ko te hōtaka Māori tēnei o te Ahika, I'm Maraia Rakraku. And I'm Justine Murray, welcome to the weekly Māori series Te Ahika on Radio New Zealand National. Coming up... In her work in various international fora as part of the NGO, non-government organisation, the Aotearoa Indigenous Rights Trust, Claire Charters often contemplates the dynamic between the governing state and Māori. The state is not going to collapse because Māori have greater protection of rights. In fact, if anything, while the protection of Māori rights is so flimsy under our constitutional structure, Māori are going to remain upset and not feel part of Aotearoa New Zealand, the state that is Aotearoa New Zealand. So the more that you the more that New Zealand fails to respect the demands and claims and, and human rights of, of Māori, the more ostracised, I guess, Māori will feel from the nation. And that's when you get real problems. Our coverage of New Zealand Music Month continues, and today we feature Caroline Tamatsi, a.k.a. Lady Six, who puts to rest the rumours about her heritage. Whose surname can easily be mistaken for being Māori, where the pronunciation is Tamatsi and in English means Thomas, but in Samoan is Tamatsi. And it's something that Lady Six has been questioned about over the years in doing publicity and promotion. Many interviewers have asked whether or not she is Māori. And well, she's not. As she explained to Justine, a wee ditty of a story about the Tamatsi name and to finally squash the rumours which even sparked a debate on YouTube. Uh, apparently, uh, so legend has it, is, it's a whole waka jumping thing, like um, from where, so like either trading goods or maybe the big, um, the big like coming to Aotearoa from Hawaii. Big migration. Maldives got off in Samoa and just stayed there and lived there, and then that's how we got the Tamati name. But it's so crazy, like people are having like um, debates on YouTube about me, like on whether I'm Samoan and whether I'm Maori. It's quite funny. I'm keeping my eye on it, like. <laughs> Last year, it was Jason Winyard who took out the Albie Pryat Memorial Māori Sportsperson of the Year Award. During his lifetime, Natiawa Albie Pryat championed Māori sport, fitting then that Winyard, who continues to excel on the world stage in woodchopping, should win the Premier Award at the National Māori Sports Awards. Which have been running since 1991 and administered by Te Tohu Tākaro Aotearoa Charitable Trust. This year's awards will be in December in Manukau City, Auckland, where it's all going to be a swanky and flash black tie affair. In our archival segment, Nga Taonga Kōrero, we revisit the 1994 awards held in Auckland. Chairman at the time of the Māori Development Corporation Trust, a major sponsor, Wadi Ward Homes, is speaking and admitting to something that possibly did not go down too well initially with the crowd. Having given the go-ahead, I was a little apprehensive as to how successful they would be. We can now look back and say that they have been a stunning success and one of the events of the year in Maritim. Albie and his team set a number of objectives. First, the outstanding achievers were to be truly recognised. Second, there had to be as much publicity as possible given to the event. We want the message to get out to our people. Third, to encourage other young Māori to excel and to be future contenders. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justine Murray. Koe ranga koupapa e nei. That's what's lined up in this week's edition of Te Ahika. Ko te mea tuatahi. Last week, International Legal Beagle Declared Charters gave us a rundown on the role of the United Nations Human Rights Council. In her capacity, 
as a representative of the non-government organisation, the Aotearoa Indigenous Rights Trust. Charters was in Geneva, Switzerland, hearing the recommendations of that council regarding New Zealand's human rights performance. According to Charters, it's an important part of a democratic process to have a non-government organisation's voice heard in an international forum. Especially when a country has been questioned about their compliance with human rights on an international level. Part of the process involves receiving a set of recommendations from the review states. Those are countries. One of the recommendations was about the 2004 Foreshore and Seabed Act, and particularly the response by Māori to it, and how the government could better facilitate a relationship with Māori about it. Well, I think the Human Rights Council has... Um, a lot of clout. You might remember that post the uh, Forsher and Seabed decision from the CERD committee, from the Committee on Elimination of Racial Discrimination, and also in relation to the Special Rapporteur's report, that the government discredited both the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination and the report of the Special Rapporteur. That's a lot more difficult to do with Human Rights Council recommendations because it is I guess the the principal UN body dealing with human rights and because it's made up of other states so you can't push aside what the Human Rights Council says and and, and paint um, the, it as being some sort of radical human rights extre- sort of extreme human rights entity because it's not; it's made up of it's made up of other states. So I think politically it has um, enormous clout. There's also the the fact that New Zealand has to report back and and is undertaken to report back um, to the council on its responses to the recommendations made by the by the council and by different states. So that forces the government to assess its own policy and to make a decision about whether it will comply or choose not to comply, I guess, with the recommendations of the UN Human Rights Council. I think that very process of being forced to consider these issues, such as whether the Treaty of Waitangi should be entrenched as a constitutional norm, um, is really powerful. Particularly when you when you combine it with, for example, the two, the 2010 constitutional review that's coming up, um, when the government knows that there's some sort of oversight or um, or questions that will be raised about its compliance with human rights if it doesn't look at these issues, then I think then I think that is then it is powerful. In the report, you wrote that the Foreshore and Seabed Act is an example of legislation that breaches both the treaty and the human rights of Māori, as defined in domestic legislation and international instruments. Yes. By flagging this to the Human Rights Council, what was their response? The response to questions raised about the Foreshore and Seabed Act um, varied. It's a difficult issue, obviously, for state delegates from other states to get their head around. There was a concern that legislation had been passed that extinguished unilaterally all potential Māori interests in the foreshore and seabed, and it replaced it with something that was, I guess... Um, inferior to what would have been possible were it not for that act. So there was concern with that unilateral extinguishment um, of those interests. It was also particularly, well, various states were also particularly concerned with the fact that it had been this legislation had been passed without the consent of Māori, so that you'll see, for example, one of the recommendations is that New Zealand continue a dialogue on the foreshore and seabed, um, taking into account um, the need to get the full um, prior informed consent of those concerned. So, for example, Māori. Um, stepping back a little bit from the foreshore and seabed issue, I think there was a, a concern that legislation could be passed that um, raised serious human rights issues and that there was no way to go and challenge that legislation domestically to try and, through the courts, for example, to try and seek... 
um, or try and get that, that legislation overturned. So there was a concern with, I guess what I'm saying is there's a concern with the constitutional structure of New Zealand where Māori can't go to the courts to seek to overturn legislation because of its inconsistency with human rights. But that was stepping back from the foreshore and seabed. So just how influential are NGOs, non-government organisations, on an international scale? The importance of having another voice in this process because when the government says things like that, we can also say, well, well, okay, maybe that's the policy of government, but it doesn't necessarily translate. So, for example, you can, the government has passed, or parliament has passed legislation that is inconsistent with the treaty and with human rights. So while there's this rhetoric about um, the Treaty of Waitangi forming a partnership, when it comes to legal enforceability, it doesn't actually hold much teeth, or doesn't have much teeth. So I think that, it, that that highlights the importance of having a different view. Um, on, the, on the vague language, well, I think that has to be deliberate um, because it's, I don't think the New Zealand government would stand up and say, um, well, the Treaty of Waitangi can't be enforced um, directly because it wouldn't necessarily want to attract the, the, the criticism that that would, that would bring. So that's why you need, I think, Māori and other organisations to, to, to show the holes in the rhetoric. How beneficial is it for Māori to participate at an international level? There's a perception that that international stuff is so far away, it doesn't really have an impact on, on what we're doing here domestically, what we're trying to achieve, if we're, if we're dealing with, say, fishery settlements or foreshore and seabed issues, that the international stuff is just so far away and, and so irrelevant to the day-to-day -day issues that, that, that various different iwi hapu are, are trying to face. But from a longer-term perspective, the international indigenous movement and UN oversight of New Zealand's compliance with Indigenous peoples' rights under international law will filter through, um, I think. For example, with this Forsher and Seabed uh, review, I think that it's fantastic that there's a perception that's got through to government that that legislation was wrong and needed some attention. And I think part of that was, or, or certainly the international critique of the Foreshore and Seabed Act, assisted in the nation accepting that there was problems with the Foreshore and Seabed Act. Certainly wasn't the sole reason, but I think when you add things up, for example, the, for, the, the, Seabed, the, the, sorry, the uh, Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination's decision, followed by the Special Rapporteurs, um, concerns with the Forsher and Seabed Act, if you put them together with Māori dissension, um, with continuing critique, I guess, of the Act, they do help to achieve something in terms of recognising that the Act, the Forsher and Seabed Act, had problems. Because it seemed, at, at, I particularly remember at the time, that it was just Māori beating their heads up against the wall. And so to actually have some objective assessment from an international human rights entity that comes to the same conclusion is helpful. It, it, it supports, it makes you realise that, you, that, that you're not going crazy, I think, in a way. So for you being at the coalface of it, I mean, is it heartening? It was certainly good um, to receive the Human Rights Council's report and it was certainly good to hear states raise the types of concerns that we had um, with constitutional protections, with a failure to entrench the treaty, for example. Um, and it was really important, I think, to hear or, and see New Zealand having to front up on these issues in amongst its international peers. And I say that because I often get the feeling that New Zealanders and the New Zealand government um, 
emphasizes and and believes that it has such an amazing human rights record that we lead the world in terms of protecting human rights that we're a, a liberal state a democ demo democratic state but it's not all hunky-dory and it's good to see that recognized here not because you want to necessarily highlight the negative but because if New Zealand wants to move forward as a more just society, then we have to start addressing these human rights concerns. We can't pretend and put up this face out to the world that we're the we're fantastic human rights, fantastic fantastic human rights country, when that's not always the case. And it's good to see that coming through in these in this fora. And it's good to see also that the, that New Zealand will have to respond to the Human Rights Council. And I guess it was also, as I've mentioned, really positive to see New Zealand take quite a constructive approach to recognise that there was issues here. It made me think that actually now we can enter a constructive dialogue about what we need to to do to make New Zealand a more just place, particularly for Māori. I mean, that's obviously my concern, but particularly for Māori. I'm Mariah Rakaraku, this is Te Ahikā, and I'm talking to Māori legal advocate Claire Charters about the recent United Nations review of New Zealand's human rights. So, Claire, what were the recommendations of the review? They were varied. As we've mentioned, um, a number of states recommended that New Zealand support the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, they also suggested that New Zealand ratify what's called the International Labour Organisation Convention 169. That's a convention uh, that also relates to Indigenous peoples and is very robust on Indigenous peoples' land rights. It recommended um, providing more, or New Zealand considering, um, ways to provide more robust constitutional protection of international human rights. Um, and also, uh, there was an interesting comment um, by Norway in particular, and where it said that New Zealand should continue the public discussion over the status of the Treaty of Waitangi with a view to its possible entrenchment as a constitutional norm. As mentioned, uh, there were some recommendations in relation to the foreshore seabed um, that New Zealand continue that dialogue in, in, in order to... Um, Get the f full prior and free, con um, sorry, <laughs> full prior and informed consent um, of those interested into any amendments to that act. I think really importantly, there was an interesting recommendation that New Zealand find appropriate ways to provide adequate compensation to Māori, in particular for their loss of land. Um, and there was recommendations that that um, New Zealand take heed of UN critique of New Zealand, so that, for example, the observations of the Special Rapporteur on Indigenous Peoples. There were, it was interesting, actually, because so much of the dialogue was focused on um, Māori and issues relating to Māori. Many were concerned particularly with disparities, socio-economic disparities, as well as the other constitutional treaty issues, foreshore and seabed issues. Which just brings me, me to a question, Claire. I mean, are human rights always, is it always associated with Indigenous rights? No, absolutely not. But um, for New Zealand, it is, I guess, an obvious flashpoint um, for other states. Um, it's something that they that they can see problems with. So certainly not. Indigenous rights um, are just part of a far greater um, body of international law. Some of it includes human rights. Um, but it came up, obvious, well, in relation to New Zealand because that is a concern for New Zealand. That's where that's where New Zealand's. It's one place in which human New Zealand's human rights record um, has some issues and some problems. And I also noted that um, Germany made a recommendation that um, planned amendments to the Terrorism Suppression Act are dropped. Yes, that was that was interesting. Um, I'm not so familiar with the amendments that, that, that have been made, but a couple of states raised um, problems, I think particularly with um, the Prime Minister's power to designate um, people as terrorists. 
But as I say, that's not an issue that, that I'm completely au fait with at the moment. Another interesting recommendation, actually, was that um, from the United Kingdom was that New Zealand consider further action to fully understand the causes of inequality faced by Indigenous people and take steps to minif- minimise the effects of inequality. Um, that's quite a quite a strong, um, big picture sort of recommendation to make because it's always struck me that in New Zealand, when it comes to equality, we have this very... Um, a very formalistic idea of equality where we think that as long as everyone is treated exactly the same, then equality is is achieved. Whereas I think with uh, Indigenous groups, including groups such as Māori and other groups, you have to accept that you have to accommodate some difference to actually achieve equality because there are different needs of these of different groups in society. So I was wondering whether the UK's um, recommendation for New Zealand to, I guess, um, consider in, in, in greater depth or, or what discrimination or, or equality in relation to Māori means was trying to get at that point. I mean, we consider ourselves a multicultural nation, but we also try and adopt this model of treating everybody the same. And it, it just, it's not, I don't, I don't personally think that it's appropriate where you have different groups with different needs, particularly Indigenous groups. And if you try and treat different groups the same, and there is difference, you, you'll end up creating or exacerbating inequality. And that's particularly true when the dominant majority of the population is say Pakia, and that they can determine then what are the priorities, I guess, um, for the state. And they might not be Māori priorities, but when you're the majority, that's the power you have. And if you try and then force Māori into being treated the same or, or, or adopting those values of the, of the Pakia majority, which often happens in, in a democracy, then you end up assimilating and also not respecting that there's a different worldview. How do you counter that then, Claire, when you live in a democracy, you've democratically elected a body to represent the interests of everybody? Mm. Mm. I mean, how do you counter what you've just said? Well, there's lots of different ways of doing it. And, um, for example... um, the United States recognises the self-determination of American Indian tribes. So that means American Indian tribes have their own court systems, they make their own laws, um, they have their own police forces on on their territories. So that's one way um, of providing a place for American Indian tribes to live according to their own values and their own rules. Of course, this exists within a democracy that is the United States of America, but it's under that model, it's okay to carve out certain areas and certain topics over which the American Indian tribes have jurisdiction. So that's one model. Or turning, say, to the Canadian model, whereas that's obviously another human rights-supporting democratic state. But they there have entrenched constitutional protections of their treaties between the First Nations and the state and Aboriginal rights. So that that provides some sort of buffer against majoritarian rules. So the majority can't go around and override treaty rights. The majority, the democratic majority, can't go around and overturn Aboriginal land rights proven under Aboriginal title law. So that is a way to buffer um, Indigenous people's rights against the, for want of a better way, the tyranny of the majority. I'm not saying that New Zealand's majority always acts in in such a way, but, but it would be good if New Zealand had some similar sort of buffer. Whether we constitutionally protect the treaty and constitutionally protect human rights is perhaps another question. How we go about achieving some place or space where Māori can live according to their own values is another question. But I think that there are 
ways and well, I think it's necessary in a, in a democracy that there be some way to protect those rights to allow Māori to live according to their own values and that's accepted by the constitution and protected from um, assimilation by having to just abide by the democratic majority's rules. So what you've just said, Claire, seems to me to be uh, what some iwi have been, ad- have been advocating for some time, which is sure. mana motuhake, which is yeah. Māori sovereignty within the sovereign state. That's that's exactly right. And I th- just going back to the international level, um, the Māori that who, who have participated, say, in the negotiations on the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, have tried to make clear that it's that self-determination, there's a right to self-determination in that, and by that it means allowing Māori to live according to their own values and, and, and own destinies and, and determining their own destinies. Um, and that's what New Zealand seems to be, well, one of the issues that New Zealand seems to be so scared of is this recognition of the right to self-determination. There are other related international legal arguments around that, but I don't think New Zealand needs to be scared of allowing Māori to have some relatively robust form of um, expressing their own values and living by their own values. That's protected under our constitutional and legal system. And there's, as I say, there's many different ways to do that. One way would be potentially giving constitutional recognition to the treaty. Another way would be um, giving constitutional protection to some human rights because, say, the right to culture can go some way um, in protecting Māori rights or providing a space for Māori. Lawyer Annette Sykes often talks about the tūhoi, and she says, yes. you know, tūhoi, it could just be like Belgium. Well, she's she's right, I think. I mean, that is exactly what happens in the United States. There are three sovereigns and three accepted sovereigns in the United States. There's the, the federal government, there are the various different state governments, and there are the tribal sovereigns, and they are recognised and called tribal sovereigns. Um, and I think that's that's certainly a model that you could look to um, in places like Tuhoi, where you've got some sort of territorial area, and I think that's supported by international law. And you know, this is, this is in the United States has been the case um, for centuries now. And those Indian tribes can exercise their own jurisdiction, they can bring in their customary law, they can do all sorts of things I mean, within the boundaries of, of, a, of, a, of the broader United States of America. There's, there's literally hundreds of tribal jurisdictions in the US. Now in 2010 we've got the Constitutional Review coming up. Do you feel, given the international context and what's happening in other countries, that New Zealand could head that way? I certainly think that it's something that we should consider seriously. I mean, Aotearoa New Zealand has obviously got its own history and its own constitutional makeup. Most importantly, we've got you know the government has to consider what Māori want and what are the most um, effective means of putting those into structural constitutional changes. Um, so definitely, I think we we should of course be looking to the US and 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 especially Canada, who went through a constitutional reform um, in the early eighties, leading to their charter of um, their their new constitution in nineteen eighty two, with as I said before, the entrenchment of treaty rights and Aboriginal rights. So we should certainly be looking overseas, and we should also be looking at for guidance to the United Nations and taking into account the critique of New Zealand's human rights compliance and trying to address address those shortcomings in a way that's that's meaningful I think I think for Māori but it's not something that New Zealand should be scared of doing um, and it always surprises me um, how scared New Zealand is of doing that because we don't need to be. Claire Charters, nor Nazi Fakowe. And of course, we have more information about today's program. You can head to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. That's spelt T E A H I K A A.
With the onslaught of winter, there's nothing better than staying in bed on a cold and rainy day. But if you're a sports person, come rain, hail or shine, when it comes to being a professional athlete or team player, it's about commitment, whether it's pounding the pavement or heading to the gym. It's a combination of physical, financial and whānau support, eh, Justine, that makes it so much more fulfilling for those who are awarded for their sporting prowess. Aira. In our series Nga Taonga Kōrero, we go back to 1994 when the awards was in its fourth year. Held in Auckland at the time, Chairman of the Māori Development Corporation, Wadi Ward Holmes, addressed the audience. The glittering evening, attended by upwards of 400 people, was compared by Timuera Morrison. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, it is a great honour and a privilege for me to be speaking to you tonight and to welcome you all to the fourth MDC Māori Sports Awards. When Albie Pryor approached me four years ago for MDC to sponsor the first Māori Sports Awards to recognise outstanding achievement in sport, having given the go-ahead, I was a little apprehensive as to how successful they would be. We can now look back and say that they have been a stunning success and one of the events of the year in Maritim. Albie and his team set a number of objectives. First, the outstanding achievers were to be truly recognised. Second, there had to be as much publicity as possible given to the event. We want the message to get out to our people. Third, to encourage other young Maori to excel and to be future contenders. Four, it had to be a dress-up occasion, and you're recognising that. It had to be a memorable, a memorable event, and financially it was to at least break even. And I'm very pleased to say that all of these objectives have been achieved. And in fact, the sold out sign goes up nearly three months in advance. Perhaps we're selling the tickets a little cheaply. When Sydney won the rights to stage the Olympics in the year 2000, once more Albie began to scheme. With Sydney being so close, how can we have more young Maori athletes participating in those games? A plan was conceived to target the rising young athletes in our secondary schools and to ensure that Maori athletes would be given every encouragement to help them make their dreams become a reality. Sponsors had to be found and the objective was to build on to the existing administration and structures which ran the various sports. Eventually it was agreed that we should set up a new structure in the form of the Te Tohu Takaroa o Aotearoa Charitable Trust to oversee both the sports awards and the new program which is to be known as the Moana Pacific Sports 2000. Trustees representing both administrators and sponsors were appointed and a very small team employed. Research showed that there were many outstanding young Maori athletes in the schools who showed great promise, but somehow they seemed to slip out of the system at the age of 16 or 17. Some came from difficult family circumstances. Some had financial difficulties. Most needed advice on who to talk to, who to approach for coaching, and how to plan their careers. Moana Pacific 2000 was conceived to provide the extra and to give them every opportunity possible. I can remember when I was at primary school in Nelson, one of the kids, and shall we say he was a bit of a stirrer, said to me, young, my young brother, what are you? in reference to his skin. His response was, I'm half Maori and half ordinary. 
<laughs> as I'm not sure whether he even knew the word Pākehā in those days. I'm sure he didn't realise the deeper meaning of how proud he was and how proud we should all be to acknowledge our Maori heritage. It's fair to say most of us also have Pākehā roots, so I believe we are very fortunate in having the best of both worlds, and that's what we want for our sporting achievers. In order to increase our percentage of New Zealand representatives, we have to provide the extra. We want a greater proportion of role models to set an example to other Māori youth. Not only does the Trust administer the major programs I've mentioned, the Trust also has been able to help some truly needy cases. One I would like to mention tonight is a young ice skater by the name of Mark Stanaway, age 15. Mark is an Aucklander who had to go to Christchurch to further his sporting career. But when he was selected for a New Zealand team to travel to Australia, his mother could not afford the fair contribution required. Our trustees agreed it was a special circumstance and assisted Mark in Australia where he broke all New Zealand records, that's the junior records and some senior, and he was really the outstanding newcomer on the scene. We are very confident he's going to make the top ten in his chosen field. Would you mind coming forward, identifying you so our people out there can see this young man. Here he is. I'd like to say thanks to um, Pam Jackson from Christchurch and Mr Albie Pryor from Auckland for um, the great help. That's all. Thanks a lot. See you. I'm sure you will also join with me to acknowledge New Zealand's Entertainer of the Year, our MC, Timura Morrison. Congratulations, Tim. He also sets a very fine example to all our young aspiring actors and entertainers. To our athletes, congratulations and good luck. And to all of you here, I hope you have a wonderful night. Kia ora An archival recording of the 1994 Māori Sports Awards held in Auckland with speaker Wadi Ward-Holmes, I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justine Murray and this is Te Ahika. Last year at the Māori Sports Awards, Kiri Kiri School in the Upper North Island won the Community Initiative Award for the sport Kiorahi Akotanga Iho, or Kiorahi, which is a sport we are profiling in next week's show, Nemaraya. I Justine, now this sport, Kiorahi, is from the old days, and we're talking pre Pākehā contact here, and it's had a real resurgence over the past couple of years, thanks to the efforts of Northland teacher Harko Brown. I understand it's a combination of touch rugby and rugby. Yeah, it is. And admittedly, when I read the description of Kiorahi in a book published last year by Brown, I found it a little bit of a mission to understand how it's played. But I'm telling you, it's fantastic. High energy and suitable for all fitness levels and ages. Next week, hear the fun and laughter as we profile the sport Kiorahi with Dr. Ihiheke and some workshop participants in Napier. With a pretty well-known Māori surname like Tamatsi, you could be forgiven for thinking Lady Six was just that, a Māori wahine. And you wouldn't be alone. I always knew she was Samoan, but had the cheek to claim her as Māori as well. Coming from a talented family of singers and support from her famous cousin, New Zealand hip-hop icon Scribe, Lady Six has come from behind the shadows of popular bands and finally, Front, her own album released this year. Time is not much. And speaking of time, it took four years of hard work as her and her partner set up a studio based in her house. And on top of that, Lady is a mum to five-year-old son, Philly. 
And it was Philly who provided the motivation for Lady Six, who told Justine that she wanted to do something for him so that when he grew up, he would be proud of his mum's achievements. Yes, very sweet. I caught up with Lady Six recently, a week out from her Australian tour. So for our listeners who perhaps haven't heard of your music, Ian, how would you describe it? Uh, kind of like a mix of... Um, uh, a bit of this, a bit of that, nah. Um, this, I'm a mix of, of like about soul, um, R and B, and reggae flavors all mixed together and baked in a cake at my house. <laughs> That's it. And then out popped. Time is not much. That's right. Let's talk about um your identity. You 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 have Māori and Samoan heritage. No, I'm just Samoan. You're just, just Samoan. Samoan. Yep. It's the last name is quite like Tamati. Uh, yeah, because it's a Maori name as well as it's a, a Samoan last name. But I think um, you pronounce it here um, Tamati, or how would you pronounce it in Maori? You say right? Tamati, Tamati. means Thomas. And, Sam- and in Samoan, we pronounce it um, Tamati. Tamati. Yeah, but we don't have like anything accentuating that. Okay. The, 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 but um, yeah, and there's only one family, one Tamati family in Samoa, and we're it. Funny <laughs> um, story is though, is that um, apparently, so legend has it, is it's a whole waka jumping thing, like um, from we so like either trading goods or maybe the big um, the big like coming to Aotearoa from Hawaii. Big migration. Maldives got off in Samoa and just stayed there and lived there and then that's how we got the Tamati name. Wow. Hey, that's really interesting. Yeah, so I don't know what's true and what's false, but that's... (laughs) It is so crazy, like, people are having, like, um, debates on YouTube about me, like, on whether I'm Samoan and whether I'm Māori. It's quite funny. I'm keeping my eye on it, like... Hey, that's really... She's talking about the treaty and walk right up and other people are going, no, nah, she doesn't care about the treaty. She's Samoan <laughs> and blah, blah. I'm like, oh, my gosh, heated. Wow. So is that something that you've had to, I suppose, you know, not to justify all your life? No, not really. No one. I mean, I was born and raised in Christchurch, so, you know, just being brown has been different, really. <laughs> and no one really goes into it. I wished I was Māori. I, I, was, I said in primary school that I was Māori because there were more Māori kids than there were Samoan. And growing up in school and that, being like quite predominantly European, yeah, I'm um, here. So, uh, but yeah, nah. And then eventually, it's just only since I've been, been this lady six person that mm. people have started to think that you know, like I get yeah, just getting interviewed and stuff on Maori programs, and then having to go, oh, actually, I'm Samoan. And oh. I'm like, yeah, I'm all like, no, just Samoan. Sorry. <laughs> so another thing that I heard then is that you and Scribe are cousins. Yeah, we are cousins. Uh. So that's so that's true. So would it say that it runs, you know, runs through the family, the whole music talent? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all the cousins can sing. I mean, you know, but I think that's normal for PI families or even Maori families too. Everyone can sing a tune, but not everyone can make an album. Eh, nah. <laughs> yeah, you got that right. Not everybody can make an album. Yeah, so, that's what I said to my cousins that are better singing than me. I'm like, shut up. Where's your album? <laughs> it's New Zealand Music Month at the moment, being being May. Um, do you feel like you're supported in New Zealand in terms of your music? Yeah, absolutely. I've always felt that way, definitely. Um, from the industry down to just my family, um, yeah, all the way through, I feel like I've had a lot of support and help along the way. And, um, and yeah, no, I feel, yeah, definitely. So talk about the um, the creative process of that album. I mean, that is one wicked album, I've got to say. Oh, thanks. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so how did that... Well, that album was a four-year labour of love. And um, I guess uh, I hadn't spent... Um, me and Parks, um, the producer, hadn't spent that much time um, sort of, like, concentrated in the studio making songs ourselves. So um, it just took us four years to kind of, like, get our heads around studio equipment and also kind of um, saving up enough money or working to earn enough money to kind of build the studio at our home. And then sort of like the first two years was spent on just kind of trying to get a sound. Like, you know, when you're, when well, I've been doing collaborations with so many different different genres from like shapeshifter drum and bass to um, hip hop to then Fat Freddy's, which is kind of like that in-between soul, I don't know what you call it. And so, yeah, we were just trying to 
define our sound and how we wanted to come out and what we wanted to sound like. Fully, you know, aware that people already had preconceptions of what to expect, especially from Sheila Rock and me being in that, um, being in like an all-female hip-hop group. I think a lot of people expected me to come out rapping, which, you know, isn't a silly, uh, you know, thought, of course. You know, but, um, you know, as you know, this, the album doesn't have really that much rapping on it at all. And I'm sure a lot of people out there were waiting and waiting for the Lady Six album because and they had heard you. I didn't disappoint them. Oh, my gosh, no way. <laughs> and so, I mean, on your on your album, Time Is Not Much, what is your, do you have a favourite song? Um, <laughs> at the moment, actually, my favourite song is uh, Give Me The Light, which is the first song. That's my favourite. It changes all the time, but I mean, I think it's because we we work on like one song and get it ready to kind of like do a video for it or something like that. And um, and so yeah, give me the lights on next video, and it's and it's actually my favourite at the moment. Been cranking it hard. Oh, that's fantastic. So who who are your who do you draw inspiration from? Um, I draw inspiration, a lot of inspiration from my family, who I um, sort of. Yeah, they're just constantly surrounded by my family. We're a massive family as well, and so yeah, just these situations and and talking to my cousins and my sisters and brothers about what they've been up to and stuff. So like, I get a lot of inspiration for um, just ideas for songs and stuff like that from all their dramas. Very dramaful family, so that's I'm lucky there. <laughs> and um, and yeah, just other songs, other musicians. Yeah. So, um, Moo from Fat Fetty's Drop produced the album, Time Is Not Much? Yep, he co-produced with Parks. And so what was the best part in putting the album together, I mean, four years in the making? Um, I think, like, it was so long. (laughs) It was so long, long and if you can imagine, like, we were quite broke a lot of the time as well when we were raising our son at the same time. So it was just, like, a huge, like, me looking back on it now, I just, I can't even believe that we kind of, were able to manage to do it, you know, without any sort of outside help. I think my favourite part would have had to have been when it was finished and how excited we were getting right at the very end when we were mixing it down. I think that that had to be one of the favourite parts. All the rest are kind of like when we were trying to make it with the songs and, the, you know, there's yeah. a big boring year in the middle there. Yeah, are you a, are you a mum? I am. Can you talk about your child? He's um, a little boy, five years old. His name's Philly. And um, we just relocated back to Christchurch in December and um, to put him in school down here. Mm. And yeah, and he's gorgeous, <laughs> like his mama. So no. he would have been—he would have been what one when you started the whole album process. Yeah, and he was—he um, was the big reason why I wanted to do it. I kind of like looked at him and just said, "Oh my goodness, this kid's going to grow up, and what have, what have I done? You know, what have I got to show for?" all these years, you know, by the time he was born, I would have been, you know, sort of involved in um, doing music for, yeah, a good six years or something like that. And I just really, I just really it felt urgent almost that I needed something for him to be able to look at and go, oh, that's what mum was doing when I was a kid. So, oh, yeah, so, so I was nice. like, okay, I like I was, you know, I was just adamant, like I need to make an album now. And I had to fight against a few people, you know, in order to, for them to see my see my vision because I was involved in quite a few projects at the time and I was yeah. kind of pulling out in order to do this. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I'm very persistent. <laughs> well, obviously. So, I mean, Lady, through that, that period of um, producing your album, you spoke about, you know, being broke and it was a long journey. I mean, yeah. being New Zealand Music Month in 2009, is there much support out there for artists like yourself, do you think? Do things need to change? I don't know. I don't know if there needs to be any change. I think you're supposed to be broke. I think that's supposed to be like that. I don't think you're um, supposed to instantly be a star. I think that's the wrong way around. You know, from all the lessons that I learned over the years, um, I definitely feel like I probably uh, I have the tools to have more um, long longevity in in this career. It's a fickle industry, the music yes. industry, and. Um, it's kind of like you know what you want to, what you choose to do. Really, do you want to be an instant success slash pop star slash overnight hit, yeah. and then that's you, or do you want to be you know a mainstay, a long termer? And if you are, you know, kind of like in the, that long term frame of mind, then you do need to learn all these things that take time and that you know cause you to be broke because you need to learn how to make that money and how to make it. Um, 
and how to work, you know. It's hard work. It's almost, it's like running it's running a small business basically. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is what it is. And you know, if you don't take the time out to learn all those details and you rely on other people to do a lot of stuff for you, uh, when that person goes, you know, they take all that knowledge with them and you're and you know, you're back to square one. So I think it's important to To go through the struggle. Back. Yeah, to go through the struggle, <laughs> yeah. The process is it's all in the process. What's the best piece of advice you were given? Uh, what was the best piece of advice to be? Uh, well, it was probably from my mum, and she always just said to me, um, you, your will is your way. She gave me this little rock when I was, like, 14, and it was painted, and it just was this big poem thing that said, like, basically, you hold the key to your own destiny. It's only by your own work whether you are going to succeed or not in anything that you want to do, and it's all on your shoulders and up to you, and I truly live by that. Formerly of Sheila Rock, Lady Six, whose Waiata, if you gave me the mic, was one of my favourites for a long time. She was talking to Justine Murray about her solo album, Time Is Not Much. And for more details about Lady Six, why not check out our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika, spelt T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A, where you can also find the links to some of Lady's smoking music videos. A Nada Kingi Biddle with this week's Fakatoki as heard at the beginning of the program. Kote waka hoe tahi katae. Kote waka hoe rua e kore e tae. This particular Fakatoki simply means the canoe that is rowed in unison will arrive at its destination. This simply means to reach one's goal, to reach their epiphany. One must work together as a team. Kotewaka huetahi katae. Kotewaka huerua ekoretae. Tomorrow, the hikwe against the super city for Auckland and what this means for Auckland City and Ngati Fatua Iwi takes place. We'll be there and reporting on it for next week's programme as well. Next week, Justin catches up with one of her whanaunga, Awanui Rita from Nisian Mystic. He mihi tēnei ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki, kia Claire Charters, me Lady Six. Ki ngā kai whakapaipai i ngā kōrero, ngā mihi. Nā reira i te iwi, hoki mai anō ki te whare tāpere nei o te ahikā. Hei a tērā wiki i te iwi, mauri ora tātou katoa.